Well, we are going to return to Matthew chapter 12 for what I anticipate to be the last time um, before moving forward to Matthew chapter 13. It has been a fun ride, but every ride at some point in time has to come to an end. You cannot stay at Disney World forever. So, and I know that's what y'all have, y'all have thought this whole time is, oh, this is better than Disney World. So, Matthew chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 46 through 50 this afternoon as we try to close this chapter out. So, Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 through 50 reads like this. Everybody open up your Bibles and read along with me. While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, your mother and your brother, or your brethren, stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him that, Who is my mother, and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother... And my brethren, for whoever shall do the will of my father, which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. So a very brief section of scripture that, you know, sometimes when things are kind of in brevity or they're in, they don't seem to match necessarily in our minds with what's previously gone on. We kind of go, okay, yeah, you know, interesting You know, Jesus says his real family is those who do the will of God. Okay, that's good. All right, chapter 13, let's move on. No, so that's these sections of scripture like this are there for a reason. All right, just to kind of uh, break open some some wealth of knowledge there. Uh, They're there for a reason. And as we've been kind of talking about this, you know, it's even more impactful, I guess you should say, if you're in every gospel. Okay, now. This specific statement is not in John, but it is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And again, when you have made such an impact on three separate writers who wrote their gospel accounts on three separate occasions, it's got to mean something. So let's dive in this afternoon and let's kind of break this out and talk about what's being said here. First, when you look at Matthew and Mark's account, they're almost exactly the same verbatim, same, just about the same thing. The difference in Luke's is actually pretty impactful. It's something that's necessary. We need to look at it because Luke's account actually says that my mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. Okay. That Matthew and Mark say... Jesus said that those who are my brother and my sister and my mother are those which do the will of my Father which is in heaven. Luke comes behind and actually expounds or elaborates or kind of maybe just tells it in a different way. Okay, But I think it gives us a little more clarity on what exactly is being talked about there. There's so many times that you could throw off and say, oh, well, see, I'm to do God's will. But what is God's will for my life? What am I supposed to do? I don't know what God's will is. Give me a sign. You know, all these things that we can throw in there. And Luke, thankfully, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, I know there's going to be a lot of people ask that question. So let me just go ahead and clarify it for you here, brother. And this is what it means. It's to hear the word of God and do it. To hear the word of God and do it. Now, that's not just a one-time event, okay? It's not just that you hear it that first time when you believed and you repented and joined the church, baptized, all those things, and now from now on out, you know, that, that was an event that happened in the past. No, we are continually to hear the Word of God and do it, okay? Hopefully, the Word of God is preached every week from here and other places around the world. And we're to hear it and we're to do it. But it is an an exponentially important fact that we have to grab here about how Christ describes what His family looks like. So that's what we hopefully will unpack this afternoon. So if you were going to ask the question... You know, what is the will of God in my life? Okay. Which obviously is one that is very, that's very prominent. Okay. There's a lot of books written on that. 
There's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, self-help things of trying to figure that out. Maybe you yourself have struggled with that at some point in time where you've said, I just don't know what God's will for me in my life is. Well, here you go. This is first and foremost. This is what comes at the preeminence. This is why when we talk about all these things, it is kind of superfluous for us to say things like, well, I'm trying to figure out what God's will for me in my life is while we are hating our neighbors. Okay? It is extraneous to our lives to be failing to do and to keep the word of God that has been so simply and perfectly displayed to us, but then have some kind of existential metaphysical question about, well, what does it mean God's will in my life? God's will is explained. God's will is shown to us. God's will is clear, very clear to us. Now, most people are asking those questions because they're trying to figure out which job to choose and where am I supposed to move to this city and am I supposed to marry this person or am I, you know, all this stuff that kind of, you know, those are those big what ifs and what whys and all these kind of questions that come up. But the question of what is God's will for my life starts off very simply with you hear his word and you do it. Just like that. I mean, that's that's what we've been going through in all of these 12 chapters is God said, do this. God said, love your enemy. Say, but I don't know what God's will for me in my life is. It's to love your enemy because he said it. The question isn't whether he said it or he made his will clear to us. It's are we doing it? And as you see here. Christ makes a pretty startlingly clear explanation of who he says is his family. Those who don't just hear it, but they hear it and they do it. So we see two real large implications from this text. Number one is that your real family is not tied to blood or to lineage but rather the Spirit of God in rebirth. Your real family is not tied to blood or lineage, but rather the Spirit of God in rebirth. That God's family trumps the natural family. Okay? You see this in John chapter 1, when Christ is kind of, God is kind of laying out Christ's whole coming into being and mission and everything that he was going to do. And this is where we get the verses that talk about his being the one that created the world. Verse 11 of chapter 1 of John says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This family of God is one that is born, if we're using that phraseology, it is born out of the will of God. And it's not by any of man's kind of lineage or intervention or contrivance, but rather by the power of God. So we establish that first. This family is not one that is created by man, nor is it, I guess you could say, um, continued by man's actions. Okay? It's not based on a lineage. It's not based on your family tree. Some people like to kind of go back and see who all they have in their family tree and see what kind of cool connections they have. This does not gain any standing, if you want to say it that way, in the eyes of God. Okay, as far as when we're talking about being part of his power, I mean, a part of his family, his family comes by his power, by his working, by his will and his will alone. That's what that verse in John chapter one tells us. And what's crazy is this is in contrast, vast contrast to the historical Judaism that's at work here. Okay, because in this line of thinking, the Jews and Judaism in and of itself allowed anyone to become part of the quote-unquote family of God or a part of the tribe of Israel merely by being born, okay? You're just born into it. 
It's a pretty easy gig. Now, a little bit later, they made you have to be circumcised to stay in there. Makes it a little more complicated, but otherwise you were just born into this. And this is the refrain that you hear from the Jews, especially these Pharisees, these self-righteous Pharisees over and over again. We were born, we're of Abraham's seed, we come from his lineage, we can track our genealogy back. Like that's supposed to mean something. And what Christ is explaining to them here is like, it's not your family tree. Your family tree isn't going to save you on this one. In fact, in other places, he'll tell them, guys, I can raise up of these stones on the ground, children of Abraham. So it really kind of takes the infamous emphasis and the power off of just that lineage that they had held so close to for so many years. And it was kind of, it was developed according to God's will. It was developed according to his plan. I mean, you had the tribes, you had the lineage that had to be perpetuated there. Certain tribes did certain things, especially if you were a Levite. I mean, that threw you into the realm of having to take care of the tabernacle and the temple. I mean, there was some lineage based stuff that went on in the old Testament. But here Christ is making a clear distinction as far as who his family is. His family is made up of the ones that hear and do the will of God. So it's a little bit different. And here's the thing is, even in the Old Testament, even when we're talking about joining into Israel and the family of God, you could even be a stranger, not born into it, but you could be a stranger and you could join in to that same family. If we look back over in like Genesis chapter 17, when God makes the covenant of circumcision with Abraham, he will actually say that you will circumcise your children, okay, that every man, child in your generations, he that is born in your house or, or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant and the uncircumcised man child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised that soul shall be cut off from his people he hath broken my covenant so you had this kind of inclusion that even people who were not of a natural lineage of jews can come into the fold they can be counted as part of the group part of the family if they kept the covenant of god in circumcision okay so you even had a way for those who were not born of the lineage to be a part of it. But it still was going back to kind of will of man, will of the flesh. You got to have a pretty strong will to succumb to circumcision, especially if you're not eight days old. Okay, you get a little bit further out there. That's going to take some will. All right. But that was a way in. The family was made up around a natural kind of influence here. And Jesus is going to separate that here. So what John is saying about being born into the family, it's, you know, it's still talking about a birth. All right. We've talked about how the Jews were born into the family and then circumcised. Well, John is still kind of talking about a birth. He's just talking about a different birth. Not talking about your natural birth. He says the one that is the child of God that is given the opportunity, given the, the opening to become the sons of God as he describes it there. He said these were born, so you still have that kind of birth mentality, but they were born not of the flesh. They weren't born in this natural sense. No, these were born spiritually according to God's power. So it's a spiritual family that is predicated by a spiritual birth. And that spiritual birth is affected and conducted solely by God. So it doesn't, and, and really when you look at it though, when you look at how this is laid out, the, the acts of God in this process, okay, does not diminish the importance or the necessity of what God has commanded the men to do. Okay? So God has said, it is I has by my power, by my, you know, I'm doing this. You were born again. You were born into this family according to my power and my will. Yet Jesus says, and it's those who do the will of my father who I call brother and sister. 
That doesn't diminish that importance. It doesn't make it like, oh, well, the first takes the primary and therefore that's all that's necessary and God does not look for anything else. No, God said, no, my family is going to do what I told them to do. That's how my family works. So to kind of explain this a little bit better, maybe think about if you go back over into the Old Testament, if you go back over into Genesis, if you go back over and look at how the law, how any kind of commandment of God is given. Okay, if we go back, let's say all the way back to Adam and Eve. All right. If you flip over into Genesis chapter one with me, when you look in Genesis chapter one. And this is something that I want because I've, I've kind of. I don't know, I guess in recent weeks and months thought about this. You know, it's always been kind of a stumbling block for us. As we read the Old Testament, we look at the law. And what we have from a New Testament perspective is, is the law is bad. The law is a bad thing. It's so hard. It's impossible to keep. It's bad. But then you have writings of David where he's singing songs about how good the law is. And how beautiful the law is. And how he wants to eat the law like honeycomb. And even Ezekiel in his prophecy is like given the scroll of the law and he eats it. Okay, So I mean there's like there's, there's all this Old Testament symbology about how beautiful and right and good and powerful the law is. And in the New Testament church we sometimes fall way too far over to the grace side. And we go oh but the law is just awful and it's, it's just all grace. It's all grace. There was a reason for the law. There's still application of the law. If you don't believe that, what did we read in Matthew chapter 5? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And I'm going to actually expound on it more. That's not just the act. That's lusting in your heart. Thou shalt not kill your brother. And that's not just the physical act. That's being angry at him in your heart. Is the law still in effect? Yeah. That moral code that he developed there is still applicable. Now, the ceremonial law pertaining to the sacrifice system, that has been finished. Christ kind of did that in, all right? You say, well, did he undo it? Did he break it? Did he destroy it? No, he just kind of fulfilled it to a perpetual, eternal efficiency that undoes the the necessity for any other sacrifice, okay? So you say, well, what about the peace offering, the love offering, the drink offering? Well, Jesus just kind of did it all. And because he's eternally the perfect sacrifice forever then... There's no more need for a sacrifice. Okay, that's kind of what Hebrews tells us. But those morally based laws, the Ten Commandments, those still apply. We don't get off the hook from that. It's not like now this New Testament time, it's like, oh, it's grace. Ten Commandments don't matter. I was a mean God back then. Now I'm a real happy God. And it's all about grace and love and Jesus. And don't worry about any of that. No, it's still applicable. Go back in Genesis chapter 1. In verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the ever-living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now, what you see in that is both a blessing... And a commandment. Do you see that? He blessed them and said, go do this. All right. There is a blessing that is intrinsically tied to the commandment. All right. He didn't say, go do this to be blessed. He didn't say, if you go have dominion, then I will bless you. If you go be fruitful and multiply, no, they're intertwined in a beautiful way. God said, I have created you in my image and I am blessing you as my image bearer and being my image bearer, you are to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue the earth. So there's a mixture of the command and the blessing all together. Now, from a legalistic point of view and what the Pharisees suffered here and what we suffer in modern times is, is we look at them and we separate them out and we say obedience and legalism gains us the blessing. Okay, if I just keep the legalism of it, if I boil it down to being an if this, then that, then I am obligating God to bless me in these ways And therefore, the obedience warrants me 
blessing. Okay? Does everybody kind of see that? That if we come from a legalistic point of view, our tendency is to say, if I keep the commandments, if I do X, Y, Z, if I just do enough of this good stuff, then God is obligated to bless me in this way. All right. So then you have a blessing in that sense for our obedience. Okay. And it creates kind of a work system. It creates a system where we don't do things except for the purpose of I'm going to be blessed from this. You say, well, that doesn't sound like a bad thing. Well, it is because you're not doing it out of a sincere love for God. You're doing it for a love of his stuff. You're doing it as a lover of what he is going to give me for this rather than I'm doing it because that's just my God and that's what I do. Do we see the difference in that? It's a fine, fine line. Okay? It is a very narrow bridge to walk across. Because you have the tendency in our natural kind of flesh to lean over towards that legalistic side. To lean over to, I'm doing this because God said that he would give me stuff because of it. Now, we may not say it that way, but that's why we do it. We have an expectation that if I show up to church every Sunday, God's going to bless me every Sunday, and my life's going to go great, and I'm not going to have any problems. And if those problems occur, then it's because somehow I failed on my end of the bargain, or God failed on his end of the bargain. But that's a bargain that never existed. If you look over in sections of Scripture, like in John chapter 15 and 14, in those areas, you know, you'll have the phrase that we all know about where Christ would say, If you love me... Keep my commandments. And what we immediately do in our brain is go, okay then. So to show my love and to get love and to do love and to do what Christ... And you know, I got to keep the commandments. I got to keep what he commanded me to do. And if I keep those things, then Christ will love me. But that statement is not a, if you do this, then I will do that statement. He's saying that being in love with me means that the commandments come as part of the relationship. The blessing of the love of Christ is interwoven with the obedience. The blessing of being fruitful and multiplying is being woven in with the command to go do what God told us to do as image bearers. And here, the blessing of being in the family of God is not that, well, if I just do what God tells me to do, then he's going to let me in his family. No, it's his family does what he told him to do. Because that's what it means to be his family. So, like, if you think about it in a natural sense from our point of view, you know, you have affiliation with your family based off of character traits, right? Would we agree with that? All right, first and foremost, genetics-wise, you're going to look a little bit like your parents, right? Really hard to avoid that. It's really hard not to look, I mean, even as gangly or as a big nose as you have or bad side profile that you have or whatever, you know, that comes out in your kids, unfortunately. Now, sometimes they get the better side of the genes. I don't know, like maybe my wife's domination, you know, gives me pretty kids and that way they don't have my big nose. So there's things about them. They're also not gingerish, okay, so they don't go over to the redhead side. So, you know, even though I really wanted one, man, I wanted a redheaded kid. You know, we're a minority. We really need some more, you know, we need some more rep. And I know y'all are looking at me going, your hair's not red. I promise you, it was red by the power. It was red. Okay. It's maybe brown now. My arm here's a little red. Anyway, so that being said, you have characteristics that then show out in your family, right? Okay. Guess what? My dad was short. Guess what I am? Short. Daniel is not part of our family. That's why. My older brother, he's tall. That's why he didn't come from us. That's, there's untold stories. But anyway, um, you show out what your family is. Okay? Your family comes from all a bunch of black-headed people. Then typically your kids are going to have black hair. You know, we get to get into these whole genetics things. Talk about dominant and recessive genes and you get into all this stuff. But guess what? The only thing your kids are going to have are the genes that you and your spouse have, all right? It's just kind of scientifically impossible for them to get anything else, all right? So your kids are going to have, your family is going to be typically made up of people who look, okay, genetics-wise similar to the people they came from, right? So just on appearances surfaces, you're going to appear to be like your family, your parents. 
In fact, you can put like our two boys together and people will go like, oh, they're twins. Like, no, not really. That's why we're still sane and healthy. All right. There's actually a couple years between them, but they look so much alike that people will go, oh, they must be twins. Well, that's because they're of the same family. They have the same genetic code with them. Also, in your behavior, as much, as much, as much as we would not like to have some of our intrinsic behaviors passed to our children genetically, okay, in addition to nature and nurture kind of a deal, but genetically, all right, and I know that my dear mama was just praying that some genetics from a certain you know, 20 set of chromosomes, all right, didn't pass on, all right, unfortunately they did, and it has perpetuated from one generation to the next, you know, what they say, the sins of the father are visited upon the son, you know, anyway, the deal though is, is that even in our, in our actions, in our behaviors, the worst thing a parent ever experiences is being able to look at their little kid and go, oh, that's how I was. I mean, most of the time I'm going, ooh, that's how you were, Emily. No, no. But most of the time we look at him and go, oh, man, that's how I was. I can watch one of my undisclosed children act in a certain way and go, oh, I can, like, remember being like that. Like, just completely irrationable, irrational, unreasonable. Like, I can remember, and, and now I'm watching it going, oh, okay, all right, there you go. That's how it happens. That's where this comes from. So those kind of things play out. You see those things embodied in the next generation. You see them in your family. That's what we're getting at. There are attributes and characteristics of our natural families that are displayed amongst our families. So that people go, oh, you must be a Kinsaw. Most of the time they're going, oh, no, you must be a Kinsaw. Okay, you know. Why couldn't you be a kitchens? I hear that all the time. But that's where you get this kind of pattern from. The family looks alike. They act alike. Right? So the same thing with God's family. When Jesus is saying here, my family is made up of the ones who hear and do the will of God. He's not saying, all right, there's your checklist, Pharisees. Here's your opportunity. Step up to the plate. I know I called you a generation of vipers and damned you to hell earlier. But look, all bets are off. If you just do what I tell you to do, man, come on in. The family life is going to be good. No, in the same kind of rhetoric that he's used before when he sit there going, you got wicked heart, you're a bad tree, you're going to develop bad fruit. I mean, all that stuff. He's going forward too and saying, my family, my mother, my brother, my sister, my cousin, my all these people that make up my family, they're going to have some characteristics and some traits about them that set them apart from the rest of the world. And that is that they hear my father's word and they do it. So that's why he looks out at the disciples, this bunch of unrelated people. That were made up of people from Peter, a firebrand fisherman, okay, to Matthew, the hated, uh, you know, tax collector. And he's looking at him and going, this, these, these are my brothers. To which a lot of people have been like, dude, I wouldn't claim that one. I would let that one slide. I'm sure we all have family members like that too. I'd let that one go. You should have not claimed that one. That was a cousin that was too far removed, and you should have just let it go. You should have never said you were related in any shape, form, or fashion. And here Jesus goes, no, those are my brothers. Say, well, how is Matthew your brother? Because my brother heard the will of God, and he did it. Because that's what my family does. The second big implication from this is that it is more important to Jesus, i.e. God, to do the will of God versus any familial or relational attachments. So it's more important to Jesus and to God to do the will of God versus any familial or relational attachments. And this is really huge for this Jewish community. He's preaching to these people and their whole existence has been built off this kind of paternistic uh, family system, okay? That it's by the Father, it's by this, this the whole society is wrapped around this. And there's many cases that Jesus will tell his followers. He'll say, father, mother, no one 
can claim those attachments and hold to those attachments more than their attachment to God. He'll say that you have to leave father and mother and follow me. That you have to abandon sometimes your brother or your sister for the greater cause of following me. So there's times where, I mean, he even said, he said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to cause division between father and son and mother and daughter and daughter-in-law and mother-in-law, all these things. And you say, well, Jesus, you're busting up the family. You're a home wrecker, Jesus. And it's like, no, because I'm calling you to your family. I'm calling you to your real family. Now, it would be great if everybody came along with you. It would be great if your whole natural family followed you into this. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, I trump everything. I trump your job. I trump your family. I trump your favorite dog. I trump your football team. I trump everything. I trump it all. You are to kill and slay everything in your path that is, a, that is keeping you from following me. Even if it means cutting your left hand off. I mean, he gets, he gets very aggressive and clear with this. He says, it's me or nothing. My family does the will of my father. So when you look at Jesus, when he's talking to these Pharisees, and really, he lays them to task. If you look over in John chapter 8, Verses 31 through 47, we won't necessarily read all of them. But, you know, again, the Jews will answer back at him with a very lineage-based argument. And Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Everybody loves that phrase. Then they answered him and said, We be Abraham's seed. And we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou you shall be made free? You see them go back to it? Man, we got Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. And I'm one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right hand, left hand. But they immediately go back to that. How can you tell me I'm in bondage? I'm in bondage, dude. I'm Father Abraham's son. Jesus answered them. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's seed. Duh. Don't you think I know that? I know you're Abraham's seed. But ye seek to kill me. Because my word has no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which you have seen with your father. And that father ain't the same one. He said, they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said unto him, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. They're still not getting it. <laughs> They're still not grabbing. What do you mean? I'm not getting it. Whose father then? Who is my father? And they said unto him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said unto them, if God were your father... You would love me. If you were part of my family, you would do the will of God. If you were part of my family, if our fathers were the same, which means we are in the same family, you would love me. It says, For I proceedeth forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? It's a rhetorical question. Even because you cannot hear my word, you are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father, you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Why? Because you believe your father who's a liar. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. You therefore hear them not, because you are not of God. 
I mean, you don't get any more controversial on a Sunday morning service than what Jesus just did. Okay? I mean, he has looked at these brothers and he said, Guys, I'm just going to lay your family tree bare. You have one father and it's not God. You claim Abraham's lineage. But if you had really been Abraham's lineage, you would do the works of Abraham. Abraham had faith and believed and trusted God. You don't believe me and you want to kill me. There's no way you can be God's family. So it ties intimately into what he's telling them here in Matthew chapter 12. He's like, you want to see the family of God? It's the ones that hear the word of God and they do it. It's not your natural lineage that matters. It's the lineage of God. And God's lineage hears his words and does them. Thus the family of God is established. And those who hear the word of God and do them are the brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and kindred of Christ. So you can kind of infer the opposite with that. And that's what he is telling them. He is telling them in this way. He is giving the, these Pharisees kind of what he did in John 8. He said, I'm just giving you a clue. I'm letting you in on a secret. That as you stand here blaspheming my works and saying they are the works of the devil, you are lying like your father. You're not my family. My family hears my words and does them. And we don't need to stray into kind of the legalism of the Pharisees in saying that, oh, well, see, this is how you get into God's family. See, you can be someone who is not born again. You can be someone who wasn't chosen before the world began, who has none of that kind of election, predestination, God sanctified stuff in it. And see, if you just do this stuff, you can get in there. See, we get back to it. It really comes back to works. If you do the right works, you get in. And that's not what Christ is saying. He's saying there are works that are to be done of his children. Okay? That is not diminished in the least. He's just saying it's by the work of God that the second come into play. It's not the legalism of if I just do X, Y, Z, I'll get there. It's that because I have gotten there, I do X, Y, Z. Because I have been adopted and have been given the sonship, because I've been born again, because God has done his work, I am able to do my work. Remember, this goes back to what we were talking about in Ephesians, that he says, I created you again. I made you new in Christ for the purpose of doing good works. He didn't say, start doing the good works and you can get in Christ and be made new. He says, I've made you new. I created you this way. And I created you this way to do good work. So when you do them, it's not from a legalistic point of view that I can claim self-righteousness and that I got myself where I'm at. That's why he says it's by faith and not by works. That no one can boast about it. You say, but then he says they're doing works. Yes, because they come from the faith that was given to him by God and had nothing to do with you. It had everything to do with his grace and his mercy. So in the same way, when we're talking about being image bearers of God, you know, we've used that phrase a lot recently. Being the image bearers of God means we bear God's image, right? That's just kind of an easy scenario there with the English. You don't even have to get too complicated with that one. If you're going to be the image bearer of God, you've got to bear God's image. Which means you've got to look like him and do things like him. You have to hear his word and do his will. God, how many of you have heard this phrase? Be ye holy, right? Be ye holy, why? For I am holy. He's not saying get holy, get yourself holy, work out your own salvation and get yourself holy. He's saying be holy, live a holy life because I have born you again for that purpose because I am. Am holy. You want to be part of my family? You got to look like me. I'm holy. What are you? So be holy. Be holy in everything that I tell you to do. Be holy in your actions. Hear my word and do them because that's what the family of God looks like. So there's some beautiful things to think about this. And that goes, I mean, you can go, just go read John again. 
And now with your ears perked up in the same kind of fashion, read John again. See how he'll sit there and tell them and say, hey, look, you're not of my sheep. If you were of my sheep, you would hear my word and you would do them because my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Okay, so I mean, all through John, it's like he just is really driving this home. So go back and read John again and you can find those sections of scripture and really latch on to them. But obviously Christ has put some importance on this. Because now you would say, oh, well, but if God adopted me and everything, that is not by what I do. And therefore, I'm kind of, if I don't do it, it's not that big of a deal. Is that what Christ said? Did Christ say, those who are my brothers and my sisters and my mothers, they are the ones that God adopted before the foundation of the world? That's not in there, is it? Now you'd say, obviously, that came first. Yes, we're not denying that. But that's not what he clued in on. He didn't say, those who are my brothers and sisters and mothers are the ones that I saw written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the world ever began. He said, it's the ones who hear the Word of God and do it. So Christ is obviously putting a big importance on hearing the Word of God and doing it. So it's obviously got to be important to us. Now, again, sometimes if we fall into kind of the legalistic point of view, then we go into, oh, man, here's something else we have to do. Man, it's like every Sunday I come in here and it's just something else I have to do. There's too much stuff I have to do and it's so burdensome. This is just like the law. You said it was good, but it's not. It weighs me down. I'm so tired of this. Let me ask you this. How many of y'all... Well, first, I think you get the picture from this that God thinks highly of the family, right? If Christ, God Almighty, is saying something that is familial with him. In fact, other places he'll say, you're not my servant, but my friend. Or you aren't my servant, but my brother. I no longer treat you like a servant. I mean, all these phrases, he's closing in the network saying, it's not like a servitude, rather it's like a family function. When you have husband and wife getting married, Christ in the church, that makes dun, 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 a family, right? So he thinks highly of the family. And we know this because what was that's one of the first institutions he creates, right? I mean, he lays down Adam and Eve together and says, boom, we got a family. I organized the family, the first man centric thing that he did was create a family unit. It wasn't good for man to be alone. So I sent Eve together. You have a family. So he's high on the family. But I think we would all admit that in this world, there's a lot of dysfunctional families, right? Are we in agreement with that? Probably all of us are going, no, you're talking about my family. No, I'm not, you know, not the case, not throwing stones. Okay. We all have dysfunctions in our family, from the littlest to the biggest. We have huge dysfunctions. We have dysfunctions with, uh, you know, with separations, all, all sorts of stuff that, that create dysfunctions within the family. Okay, we have dysfunctions in quote unquote functional atomic nuclear families. Okay, you have dysfunctions where daddy's lazy and mama doesn't have any interest. I mean, you have a lot of dysfunctions even in families that you go, oh look at them, they're a perfect family. They got husband and wife and they've been married for seventy years and they got two and a half kids and a dog. I mean, you just got the perfect American dream. And there is functioning dysfunctionalism within that. There's functioning dysfunctional, whatever the word is, inside that family. So I think we're all well acquainted with the dysfunctional families in this world. And there are a lot of people who struggle with the idea of family because of that. Daddy wasn't there for me. Mommy wasn't there for me. My brothers and sisters weren't there for me. I have issues that stem from all of this. There are things that have affected me psychologically and elsewhere. That these things, these scars bear on what the world has done inside our families. So there's plenty of family images that we have that are dysfunctional. And we say, man, why do I want to be a part of that? You know, why would I want to be a part of this family? Family just seems like a bad thing. I'd rather go out on my own and be independent. And that way no one can hurt me and I can't hurt anybody. And it's a win-win situation. But the picture that we have with Christ and God 
is a family. And it's a family that he is saying, come on into this family. (laughs) He's saying, come on into this family. Maybe you do have a dysfunctional family. Maybe your family hasn't represented what I intended in Genesis chapter 1 well. Maybe you have failed on every mark as a husband, a father, a brother, a sister, a mother, a wife. But I'm opening up my family. My family is better than your family. My family is founded with a father who never goes away. My family is found with a father who corrects me not out of sadistic nature, but out of a desire and love for production of fruit. So when you see this come together, he will lay out like in Mark chapter 10 to kind of close this out. In Mark chapter 10 verses 29 through 31, he'll say, And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you that there is no man that has left house or brother or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions but in the world to come, eternal life. Christ told his disciples, you will never get away from the dysfunctionalists, the dysfunctional, I can't say it, the dysfunction that's in your family, okay? I can't get it out. You will never get away with that. And sometimes you'll even leave that for Christ's sake. You will lay it down for the gospel's sake. You will leave father and mother, etc. Because it is in the way of Christ and the gospel. He says, but I want you to know something that is a promise from Jesus Christ. He says, in this world, in this time, those who pursue Christ and the gospel are blessed a hundredfold with brothers, sisters, mothers, cousins, everybody else included that makes up the family. That is a blessing now. That is a blessing now. He doesn't say there might be the possibility that you find. No, he says when you enter into this family of God, you have family around the world. You have a family of brothers and sisters and mothers and, and, and friends and everything that come up from around the world of every kindred, nation, tongue, and tribe on the face of the earth. I've taken your one dysfunctional family and I've replaced it with millions. So he says, come on into this. If you've had to leave your father because he was a dysfunctional father and he interfered with you and the gospel in Christ, well, that's fine. It's not good that that situation happened. And we would rather see our natural fathers converted and come into the family as well. But he says that doesn't stop you. And in fact, if that's a scar on your heart, guess what? You have just walked into a family that has the best daddy around. Say, well, maybe you were abandoned as a kid and you left and your mother left you or whatever it may be. And you have a scar from that. Then guess what? Come on into the family, sister. There's thousands of moms in here. You have you have not lacked in joining the family of God. You have gained a hundredfold. So we are able to come into this family and know that we are loved. We are able to come into this family and know that we are at peace, that we can grow, that we're going to be nurtured, that we're going to be fostered. And that's what it means for us to be the family here locally in our local church body in that way, but also universally. And he says, yeah, you'll still encounter persecutions in this. Guess what? Now you have a family to encounter persecutions with. You're not in this alone. You've got a whole family with you. You've got a family behind you. So the persecutions will still come. I'm not guaranteeing you that life is going to be rosy, but your family's with you. How many of you ever watch movies like The Godfather or things like that? I know none of y'all have, okay, because we don't watch bad movies in here. Um, But how many of you have watched movies where they talk about it just family? Blood is thicker than water. That I can go through whatever problems or trials there is because my family is behind me. Well, now I'm going to give you the reality of that. That your natural family will fail you over and over again, but God's family never will. And he says, and here's the beautiful thing beyond that. He says, after all this is done with, after all this world gets burnt to a crisp, after everything changes and this family gets taken up, this is a family that is never going away. It's on into eternal life. Our family will be with us forever. 
So it's a beautiful picture of the family of God here, a beautiful picture of the problems that we face in our natural families. But then in entering the kingdom of God, we get to see what a real functional family looks like. So in this world, we will enjoy the blessings while still encountering the persecutions. But not only do we have each other together here, we have each other together forever in eternity. Our Father never goes away. We get to go to Him. Our mothers and our brothers and our sisters never go away. We just go on with them. We get to take a big old family vacation. There's no like elbowing for space in the car or anything like that. We just get to have the best family vacation. Go talk about going back to Disney World. Going back is forever. So it's a beautiful thing. But we know that we, we know what marks us as the family of God is that we hear God's word and we do it. So that's why it's so important as we've been going through these things that we recognize that when God tells us to love our neighbors, we love them. Why? Because that's what his family does. That's what it means to be a part of this family. When God says to love your enemies, we do it. Why? Because that's what it means to be a part of this family. When God says to pray for one another, that's what we do. Why? Because that's what it means to be a part of this family. When God says that we repent and we obey and we do what he commands us to do, we do it. Why? Because that's what God said it means to be a part of this family. That's what sets us apart from the world. That's what makes us uh, distinct and different from everything else out there that will be offered. You know, that's like one of the number one reasons why young men join gangs. is because they think they found a family. A family filled with a bunch of thuggish, ruggish guys who would shoot up people and destroy life. They say, oh yeah, but they care about me. And that's why they're in it. That's why they'll do the horrible, despicable things that their quote-unquote family tells them to do because they feel that familial connection. So when we go out in the world and we're ministering to people and we're doing what God told us to do, okay, because that's what his family tells us to do, then the way that we minister is from those kind of points of view. That you can look at them and say, you don't need some ignorant thug telling you that this is what family is. Look at that picture of that. That's not what a real family is. Let me show you what a real family is. Let me show you what a real daddy looks like. Let me show you what a good mama looks like. In fact, I'm going to show you like a thousand of them. Let me show you about brothers and sisters who are going to have your back no matter what. So hopefully we'll take these things. Praise God, we got out of Matthew 12. God bless us to continue to think on this.